All Bones Considered, podcast number eight, December 2019. The Lady Artists, Alice Barber Stevens, Cecilia Bow, and Harriet Frischmuth. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bella Kenwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and population of its own. Join me for the next 40 minutes or so and find out about several of our permanent residents. Alice Barber Stevens, one of the premier magazine illustrators of the late 19th century. Cecilia Bow, a painter acknowledged in her day as one of the best portrait painters in the country. And Harriet Frischmuth, whose Art Deco sculptures continue to astound viewers. I'm Joe Lex, your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. One of the joys of doing this podcast is discovering fascinating and important people who are brand new to me. Before visiting Laurel Hill Cemetery, I had never heard of Harriet Frischmuth, student of Auguste Rodin and one of the premier sculptors of the early 20th century. Now I am a huge fan. While many people are familiar with Philadelphia Impressionist painter Mary Cassatt, few have heard of Cecilia Bow, considered her equal and one of the best portrait painters, male or female, in 19th century Philadelphia. And Alice Barber Stevens turned out to be another 19th century pioneer in fine arts and feminism, especially in the world of magazine illustration, whose first published illustrations, pushed by Thomas Eakins, followed Howard Pyle by only one year. I hope you will learn about them, too, in this edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Alice Barber Stevens was one of the best-known magazine illustrators of the 19th and early 20th century. She was born on July 1, 1858 in New Jersey, the eighth of nine children of a Quaker couple. She and her family soon moved to Philadelphia. At age 15, she became a student at the Philadelphia School of Design for Women, now Moore College of Art and Design, where she studied wood engraving. This school had been founded in 1848 by Sarah Worthington Peter, wife of the British consul at Philadelphia. It was first among a group of women's design schools established in the 1850s and 1860s, with others in Boston, New York, Pittsburgh, and Cincinnati. It began as a charitable effort to train needy and deserving young women in textile and wallpaper design, wood engraving, and other saleable artistic skills, providing a means for training women who needed wage work. Alice was admitted to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts at age 18 in 1876. That's the first year that women were admitted to PAFA. PAFA had been established in 1805 by painter and scientist Charles Wilson Peale, 
sculptor William Rush, and other artists and business leaders. The Laurel Hill connections with PAFA are almost innumerable, with many founders and board members as well as artists being interred here. Although both PAFA and the Philadelphia School of Design for Women taught art and design, they were not of equal social importance. The School of Design remained clearly lower in the city's cultural hierarchy, both because it was a women's school and because it was dedicated to commercial art instead of the fine arts. Alice began to get work as an illustrator for many magazines. In 1888, she began to teach courses at the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. Around the same time, with artist and educator Emily Sartain, she was one of the founders and officers of the Plastic Club of Philadelphia, the oldest art club for women in continuous existence. More about this organization later. During this period, she also co-founded the Civic Club of Philadelphia. In June 1890, at age 32, Alice Barber married Charles Hallowell Stevens, an instructor at PAFA. According to Charles' student, Helen W. Henderson, Alice and Charles had first become attached while they were both students at the academy and, quote, a long romantic engagement preceded their eventual marriage. The same year, she won the Mary Smith Prize for Best Painting for a Resident Woman Artist at the annual PAFA exhibition for her work, Portrait of a Boy. The commissions continued. She illustrated Sarah Orne Jewett's An Everyday Girl in 1890. Her 1891 painting, The Germania Orchestra at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, is now among the collection of the Biggs Museum of American Art in Dover, Delaware. During the mid-1890s, following the development of the halftone process, Stevens started to use more varied media, including watercolor, for her illustrations. The increasing popularity of her illustrations for mystery stories earned her the title Mistress of Mysteries. In 1893, there was an article published about her in The Quarterly Illustrator, written by Frederick W. Weber. It was called, quote, a clever woman illustrator, unquote. Here is an excerpt. It is only within a few years that women have been permitted to attain prominence in the ranks of artists and illustrators, although there have been individual women who have compelled recognition by the strong merit of their productions. But those who won place were for a long time exceptional instances of whom it is necessary to mention only Rosa Bonheur as a type. But in this, as in many other things, the close of the century has witnessed a change and the field of art is as widely open to woman as it is to man. There is no reason why this should not be so. On the contrary, there are many reasons why it is really an advance. For woman, with her more delicate sensibilities and her natural love of the beautiful, is apt to have a closer sympathy with nature and life and a quicker perception of the poetic element which is so strong an inspiration for artistic effort. Mrs. Stevens has experienced the advantages of change conditions in the success that has attended her in her new field. Her services were almost monopolized for several years by Harper and Brothers, whose high standard requirement is universally known. During the past two years, she has furnished illustrations for other publishing firms, and her work appears in The Century, The Cosmopolitan, Frank Leslie's, The Ladies' Home Journal of Philadelphia, and various Boston publications. 
At the 1895 Atlanta Exposition, a World's Fair in Atlanta held to stimulate trade, she won a bronze medal. And in 1899, won a gold medal at an exhibition in Earl's Court, London, for her illustration of George Eliot's Middlemarch and Dinah Craig's John Halifax, Gentleman. A year later, her illustrations for Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn won a bronze medal at the Exposition Universale in Paris. Throughout the year 1897, Ladies' Home Journal ran a series called The American Woman, featuring six full-page illustrations by Stevens. The illustrations depicted the American woman in six different settings, society, religion, home, summer, business, and motherhood. Notably, Stevens, who was both a career artist and the mother of a then four-year-old son, chose to set three of the scenes inside the home and three outside the home. She also illustrated Mary E. Wilkins' The People of Our Neighborhood, which was published in 1898. In 1899, Stevens was invited to teach at PAFA, but she declined the offer due to poor health. Following a European sojourn during 1901-02, Stevens also completed illustrations for the 1903 edition of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. During Stevens' time in Paris in 1902, Maria Cristina of Spain requested that Stevens paint her portrait. She served on the jury for the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis in 1904, more commonly known as the St. Louis World's Fair. During the late teens, the pace of Stevens' work began to slow. She reportedly told an interviewer that she refused to work during World War I, saying it was not, quote, worthwhile to make pictures in the midst of destruction, end quote. Among Stevens' students at the School of Design was Charlotte Harding, who also became a well-known illustrator. Harding also worked for Century, Harper's, and other popular magazines at the time. Stevens invited Harding to share her studio, located at 1004 Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. The Chestnut Street studio became a meeting point for other artists, including students from the School of Design and the Academy of Fine Arts. I found this description from the September 1900 issue of Brush and Pencil. Quote, her studio is on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia, on the top floor of an office building in which there is no elevator an inconvenience which saves Mrs. Stevens and her studio partner, Miss Charlotte Harding, too many interruptions during work hours. The studio is a quaint room with a low ceiling built in the form of an L and arranged with quiet good taste. It is an attractive workroom with all the appointments necessary to the calling of its occupants. And when it is occasionally opened for a studio tea, it is frequented by all the artistic community of Philadelphia who admire Mrs. Stevens as much for her pleasant personality as her professional attainments." Unquote. In the latter part of her career, in the 1920s, Stevens' illustrations were made of mostly washes or charcoal with washes. She painted landscapes and portraits of Quakers and Pennsylvania Germans. By 1926, she had ceased working commercially. In 1929, the Plastic Club held a retrospective exhibition of her work in Philadelphia. Let's go back a few years. Following a long trip abroad in 1901-02, the Stevenses had architect William Lightfoot Price 
convert a stone barn in the utopian artist community of Rose Valley, Pennsylvania, into the Thunderbird Lodge, a sprawling house that contains studios for both of them. It's about a two-minute walk from the present Hedgerow Theater in Rose Valley, which was also designed by Price. She died at Thunderbird Lodge at the age of 74 in 1932, after having a paralytic stroke. She's buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in section Philadelphia, lot 185. The Plastic Club was something new to me. It is one of the oldest art organizations in the United States, founded in 1897 and located at 247 South Kamak Street, the little street of clubs that was a cultural destination in the early 1900s. It was founded by art educator Emily Sartain, an absolutely fascinating woman in her own right, as an arts organization for women to promote collaboration and members' work, partly in response to the Philadelphia Sketch Club, which was an exclusively male arts club. It offered art classes, exhibitions, and social events such as its annual masquerade party called The Rabbit, so-called because Welsh Rabbit was the refreshment served at the first function. In 1918, the Plastic Club was involved in the founding of the Philadelphia School of Occupational Therapy, reflecting the connection between occupational therapy and the arts and crafts movement in the United States between the Civil War and World War I. In 1991, the organization opened its membership to include men. The Plastic Club building at 247 South Kamak Street was added to the Philadelphia Register of Historic Places in 1962. Alice Barber Stevens, one of the great illustrators of America, is the first of Our Ladies of Art. Cecilia Bowe establishes the exception to the rule that though the feminine sex may imitate in art, they lack power to create initial objects. For she works as the one woman in a thousand who has no man standing between herself and her productions. Homer Sangadon, 1905. When William Merritt Chase presented the Carnegie Institute's gold medal in 1899, he named Cecilia Bow, quote, not only the greatest living woman painter, but the best that has ever lived. Indeed, Bow made her mark as a renowned portrait artist of the American elite, a self-identified new woman, a term being used to describe 19th century women who explored educational and career opportunities they had historically been denied, Bo forged her way into an art world dominated by men. You can find her prolific body of work in collections across the globe, including at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, the Art Institute of Chicago, and our very own Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Eliza Cecilia Bow was born in 1855 in Philadelphia. Her mother, Cecilia Kent Levitt Bow, died of puerperal fever, infection caused by uterine infection following childbirth only 12 days later. She was buried in Section 7, Plot 179 at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Cecilia's father, silkmaker Jean-Adolphe Bow, struggled to handle the grief of his wife's passing and he fled to his home country of France. He returned to Philadelphia only once, 
arriving when his daughters Cecilia and Amy Ernesta, Eddie, were two and five years old, and then only for a period of four years. While there are recorded accounts of him sharing drawings and sketches with the family, apparently he would draw, quote, enchanting pictures of animals doing amazing things, end quote, such as elephants sitting on tree branches and smoking tobacco through their trunks. He ultimately left again after a failed attempt to mend the broken bond between him and his family. Cecilia would later write of her father, We didn't love Papa very much. He was so foreign. We thought him peculiar. Ultimately, his absence left the young Eliza Cecilia and sister Etta in the capable care of their maternal grandmother and aunts. When Jean Adolphe died in 1884, he was buried with his beloved wife, Cecilia, at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Initially, Cecilia Bow was not called Cecilia. In fact, Cecilia would later learn that her father not only felt she was unworthy of her mother's name, but couldn't bear to hear it. To appease him, the family nicknamed her Lely. It was only later, when she became an accomplished and internationally recognized portrait painter, that she would reclaim her mother's and her own name, Cecilia Bow. What did Lely do to become Cecilia? In most accounts of her life, the steadfast and nurturing love she and Sister Etta received from her mother's large extended family, Grandmother Levitt, and the aunts Eliza and Emily, is always mentioned. Despite years of turbulence, the women of the Levitt family are described as well-educated, socially adept, and excellent household administrators. After many years of moving around, the family ended up purchasing inexpensive property at 4305 Spruce Street, now a multi-story brick apartment building. This allowed them to settle permanently in the West Philadelphia community. There, Aunts Eliza and Emily would be accomplished musicians, artists, and seamstresses. One friend who frequently visited them noted that the creative and lively Levitts, quote, made other women seem like stuffed dolls, end quote. Their influence on Lely was marked. Aunt Emily would marry mining engineer William Willie Foster Biddle in 1860, gaining the five-year-old Lely, quote, the strongest and most beneficent influence in my life, end quote, after her grandmother. Biddle, who later served on George McClellan's staff during the Civil War, became superintendent of the Freedom Iron Works after the war. He ended years of unsettling financial uncertainty for the Levitt women and the Bow children and would provide significant financial support at different stages of Lely's schooling. William Foster Biddle and Emily Biddle are buried in Section G, Lot 82 of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Going into details of the Biddle family branch would probably take months. Both Emily and her family exposed Lele to a variety of artistic influences during her childhood. A year before joining her sister Etta at Mrs. Lyman's school in 1869, Lele, age 13, received, quote, a small package of lithographs, unquote, a collection developed for beginning art students by early 19th century English landscape painter James Duffield Harding from her Aunt Eliza. In 1871, at age 16, Lely started art lessons with Catherine Ann Drinker, 14 years her senior, a distant relative and accomplished artist 
who had her own studio at 524 Walnut Place, very close to Washington Square. Before offering instruction, Catherine, who had grown up in Macau, China, and served as the director of an academy of girls in Baltimore, Maryland, when she was 19 years old, quickly became a friend and a huge role model for Lele. The two women shared the same birthday. Both were orphans of a sort raised by their grandmothers. Their friendship would become lifelong. And Lele's sister, Etta, even married Catherine's brother, Henry Sturgis Drinker. After a year of copywork under Catherine's tutelage, Lely took her tutor's advice to continue her art training at Philadelphia's Vanderveelen School and enrolled in 1872. While there, she learned the rudimentary skills of being an artist. Shortly thereafter, driven by the desires for independence and to contribute to her family's finances, at the age of 18, Lely assumed her mother's name, Cecilia, and began her professional life as an art teacher and commercial artist. This began what art historian Sarah Burns describes as the most feminine phase of Cecilia Bowe's career, training and laboring as a semi-professional commercial producer of technical drawings and portraits on porcelain. Her first position was as Catherine Drinker's replacement as the drawing instructor at the school of Miss Weltha L. Sanford, about whom I can find little. When it became apparent that her students were an insufficient challenge, Will Biddle arranged a tour at the Sinclair Printing Establishment, an introduction to lithography that brought her many commissions. On the strength of her first published work in the Brighton Cats in 1874, she was hired to make lithographic drawings of fossils for famed paleontologist Edward Drinker Cope, working on the U.S. Geological Survey. Do yourself a favor and read the Wikipedia entry on Edward Drinker Cope, a fascinating character. After conquering drawing and lithography, Cecilia quickly picked up China painting through lessons from French ceramist Camille Piton, who was teaching at the National Art Training School. By the end of the 1870s, in her mid-twenties, Cecilia was exhibiting her work at PAFA and elsewhere, eventually leading her to her first notable success, the exhibition of Le Dernier Jour de France, The Last Days of Childhood, in 1885. The painting took two years to complete and was awarded the Mary Smith Prize for the best work by a local woman. It featured none other than her sister Etta, and her firstborn child, Henry Harry Sandwith Drinker, who later became an attorney and lent his name to Philadelphia's Drinker Biddle Law Firm. Two of Harry's brothers were Cecil, the founder of the Harvard School of Public Health, and Philip, inventor of the iron lung. Cecilia painted Harry again later in life, this time with his wife, Sophie Drinker, a founder of the Women's Musicological and Gender Studies, and one of Harry and Sophia's children, Ernesta Drinker Ballard, was a founder of the National Organization for Women, now, and the person generally recognized as responsible for pushing the Philadelphia Flower Show to international prominence. Another daughter, Cecilia Bow Drinker, married into the Boston Saltonstall family and became a prominent musicologist. Somewhere in this story, there's also a branch about the Trapp family, believe it or not. In fact, the Drinker family probably deserves a podcast of its own. 
After nearly two years of study in Paris at the Académie Julian, Cecilia returned to the United States and closed a gap that separated her from John Singer Sargent, the internationally acclaimed celebrity painter to whom she is often compared. And there were a handful of others who dominated the international portrait market. At the height of her career, she painted the cream of the American elite. College presidents, businessmen, socialites, political notables, including Edith and Ethel Roosevelt, the wife and daughter of President Theodore Roosevelt. She exhibited widely and had several solo shows in New York and elsewhere. She was presented with two honorary degrees. That's one more than John Singer Sargent got. As the first woman with a regular faculty appointment at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, she taught portrait painting and drawing there for 20 years. Cecilia Bowe stayed unmarried and childless for the duration of her life. While she was a member of the all-female plastic club, she also cultivated intense friendships with men. She alchemized a ruthless work ethic, galvanized a perfectionist in professional devotion, mobilized her wit, charm, assertiveness, and all the while maintained a public persona of a non-threatening, well-bred lady. While studying in Paris, she wrote a letter stating, you know how I hate to fail, and that my grip is pretty hard as a rule. That grip won her many honors, including membership in both the National Institute of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 1933, Eleanor Roosevelt honored Bo as, quote, one of the American women who had made the greatest contribution to the culture of the world, end quote. Both Cecilia Bowe and Mary Cassatt, 11 years her senior, were at the same time declared, quote, the greatest woman painter during their careers. In fact, they were bitter rivals, a story that goes beyond the scope of this podcast. In 1942, Cecilia died at the age of 87. She is buried in the Henry Sturgis Drinker family plot of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Summit 673, along with her sister, her brother-in-law, and several other drinkers, not far from where her story began. Starting about 1910 and lasting for 20 years or so, there was an explosion of classical sculpture in the United States. Auguste Rodin was winding down his genre-changing career in Paris. He died in 1917. Daniel Chester French sculpted his magnificent seated Abraham Lincoln for the monument bearing his name in Washington, D.C. in 1920. Gutzon Borglum started his massive Mount Rushmore project in 1927. It would not be completed for 14 years. Henry Moore was starting to make a name for himself. Philadelphian Alexander Sterling Calder completed his statue of Cleo, the muse of history, for the tomb of Henry Charles Lee at Laurel Hill Cemetery in 1911. He then spent four years on the magnificent Swan Memorial Fountain in the middle of Logan Circle. Roughly midway between his father Alexander Milne Calder's massive statue of William Penn atop City Hall and his son Sandy Calder's mobile in the entrance hall of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Both Milne and Sterling are buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Pencoid section near the Bell Tower. 
The Art Deco style was in its heyday, having started in France just before the Great War and lasting until World War II when it was replaced by a more practical, functional style. The Philadelphia sculptor Harriet Whitney Frischmuth found that her style was meshing perfectly with the times and became one of the most sought-after sculptors in the country. Frischmuth was born in Philadelphia in 1880. Her parents divorced when she was in her teens, and her mother took Harriet and her sister to Paris for eight years. While there, she was introduced to sculpture, initially as a model, and found her life's calling. She studied briefly with Auguste Rodin at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris, and for two years with Kuno von Uchtritz Steinkirk in Berlin. When she returned to the United States, she studied at the Art Students League of New York under Goodson Borglum and Herman Atkins McNeil. While in New York, she worked as an assistant to the sculptor Carl Bitter and studied human anatomy by performing dissections at the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Harriet won the prestigious saint Award in 1910. She established an art studio on Park Avenue and in 1913 moved to a converted stable in Sniffen Court at 152 East 36th Street. This new home became her sculpture studio for the most important years of her life. In 1916, Harriet met the woman who had become her muse and changed her life, a young dancer and artist model, Disha Podgorsik. Disha was born in Austria-Hungary, now Slovenia, at an uncertain date. I have sources giving her birth date as either 1892 or 1899. Slovenia is, of course, also birthplace of First Lady Melania Trump. Disha was a tall, slender beauty who had the rather unique skill of being able to hold a difficult pose for a long period of time and then assume that exact same pose the next day without prompting. She was an oft-sought-after model. The George Eastman House of Photography and Film Archives include 20 black-and-white nude photographs of Disha by Nicholas Murray, M-U-R-A-Y. You can find them online. Disha eventually met and married dancer Jean Deltail. Their reception was in Harriet's studio. Harriet loved to sculpt Disha and used her time after time over many years. Harriet came to specialize in dancing nudes. She would often put music on her studio Victrola and allow Desha to move about until she could strike a pose they both liked. Her best-known work is probably The Vine, a greater-than-life-size bronze housed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, which she finished in 1921. There is a similar model in the outdoor sculpture garden at University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. Another outstanding work from this period is Crest of a Wave from 1925. It stands on a fountain in Como Park Palm Dome in St. Paul, Minnesota. Other works to look for, Joy of the Waters from 1912, The Hunt from 1921, Temptation from 1922, and Sweet Grapes from 1928. A personal favorite of mine is Pas de Deux, a passionately exuberant nude male and female totally enthralled with their own movement and the joy of dance. In fact, it may remind you of some of Matisse's dancers from Joy of Life. 
Although only 20 inches tall, one sold at Sotheby's a few years ago for $78,000. One of her smaller sculptures, Speed, was used as the model for hood ornaments on expensive cars with expensive hoods in the 1920s. When you think of a sleek female figurehead on a fancy 1920s car, you are probably imagining one of Harriet's works. One showed up on the television program Antique Roadshow recently and was given an estimated auction value of twenty dollars to $30,000. While researching this podcast, I found a fascinating story and commentary from a blog called The Blue Lantern from May 2014. It concerns Harriet and another one of her models, Madeline Parker. Quote, Parker was also the model for Call of the Sea, 1924. It stands a diminutive four feet tall, but is a breakthrough sculpture by an American woman. I remember seeing it at the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens as a little girl. The exuberance of her arm thrown back as she rides the fish is the essence of joy, frozen in a moment and unforgettable. There is something in Frischmuth's approach to the female body that ignores the prurience that the erotically judgmental male gives to the experience. Speaking of which, a version of Call of the Sea was donated to Vassar College in 1954 to grace Sunset Lake on campus. Doubtless because the figure of the young girl riding a fish is so deliciously rendered and deliciously suggestive, it was the object of several kidnappings by male students from Yale University. When the lake was dredged in the late 1970s, Call of the Sea had disappeared, only to be returned in 2011. Restored, it now stands safely in the sculpture garden of the Francis Lehman Loeb Arts Center. End quote. The unfortunate model Parker died at age 25 of leukemia while she was on tour in Australia. Of course, if you've been on a tour at Laurel Hill Cemetery, you've also seen one of Harriet's more famous works. Head down toward the Hunting Park entrance, and right next to the Adam Forpaugh Jr. Mausoleum, you will find the Burwind family plot. Harry Burwind was vice president of Burwind White Coal Company. His brother Edward was CEO. Another brother, Charles, has a magnificent mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Franconia section. When Harry died in 1932, Harriet got the commission to do his memorial, and she came up with a classic. She made a plaster model of Dacia and sent it to a granite quarry in Vermont, where stonemasons took eight months to carve the final product out of a 40-ton block of stone. Disha stands with an uplifted arm and an upturned face. She is somewhat larger than life and partially garbed with a mantle and cowl, her right breast exposed. The dome represents the firmament. The whole monument stands 12 feet high with the base, about 8 feet wide and more than 3 feet thick. It is named Aspiration and it is breathtaking. The Berwyn Company still exists, by the way, having diversified into pharmaceutical, specialty chemical, medical technology, automotive, commercial and emergency vehicle, pet food, life sciences, energy, general industrial, and natural resources. 
It is currently capitalized at more than $3 billion. Harriet's style fell out of favor in the 1940s. In addition, she injured her arm and shoulder in a fall from a scaffold in 1940 and never regained her mobility. She lived the rest of her life quietly in Waterbury, Connecticut, in an apparent Boston marriage with Ms. Ruth Talcott, who was gently described in biographical sketches as her, quote, secretary and longtime companion, end quote. She almost made it to her 100th birthday, dying early in 1980. She is buried in a quiet corner of the south section of Laurel Hill Cemetery in plot 981. Her stone is a simple one, containing only her name and the dates of her birth and death. Treat yourself to some beautiful artwork and learn more about this amazing woman, Harriet Whitney Freshmuth, one of the women artists of Laurel Hill Stories. Next time in the January edition of All Bones Considered, it's the Attorneys General. Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill are the final resting places of two United States Attorneys General, Richard Rush and Henry Gilpin, and eight Attorneys General for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We will go into detail on the first two and give you some little tidbits about the others in our January edition. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballack-Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of the more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep your body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. There were many sources for the section on Alice Barber Stevens. A clever woman illustrator by Frederick W. Weber and Alice Barber Stevens from The Quarterly Illustrator, Volume 1, Number 3, July through September 1893, pages 174 to 180. Alice Barber Stevens by F.B. Schaefer, from Brush and Pencil, Volume 6, Number 6, September 1900, pages 241 to 247, and 
Educating Women for Art and Commerce, the Philadelphia School of Design, 1848-1932, by Nina DeAngeli Walls, from History of Education Quarterly, Volume 34, Number 3, August 1994, pages 329 to 355. I also recommend the online website artstimejournal.com for their winter 2014 essay on Alice Barber Stevens, Emerging Ways of Living and Working. For Cecilia Bow, check out three consecutive articles from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, Volume 124, Number 3, July 2000. The Greatest Woman Painter, Cecilia Bow, Mary Cassatt, and Issues of Female Fame by Nancy Mowell Matthews, pages 293 to 316. Under the Skin, Reconsidering Celia Bow and John Singer Sargent by Sarah Burns, pages 317 to 347. And Intricacies and Interdependencies, Cecilia Bow and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts by Jeanette M. Tuey, pages 349 to 374. For the competition between Bow and Cassatt, see Mary Cassatt and Cecilia Bow, an analytical comparison of two new women and issues surrounding femininity, modernity, and 19th century feminism. That's a graduate thesis available online by Haley D.K. McGurk, published in 2017. For Harriet Frischmuth, I used The Art of Harriet Frischmuth by Marion Kuthoy Smith from the American Magazine of Art, Volume 16, Number 9, September 1925, pages 474-479. Harriet Whitney Frischmuth, American sculptor, author not named, oddly, from The Courier, Syracuse University Library Associates, Volume 9, Number 1, October 1971, pages 21-35. to it's an interview with Harriet after she had donated her works and papers to Syracuse University. And finally, a beautiful essay at the bluelantern.blogspot.com called Joy is Our Cause, Harriet Whitney Frischmuth by Jane Librizzi from May 2014. This tells the anecdotes about Harriet's relationship with Deisha Deltile and the frequent disappearance of The Call of the Sea. Thank you.